welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. This is episode two of our Spy Master interview series. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And Cam, what have we got for everyone this week? Well, Scott, I think I may have to change your name to Spy Catcher, Scott, because you have landed on another great get for us. Um, we are going to talk this week to Ross and Marshall Thurber, the uh, director and co-writer of Central Intelligence, as well as the uh, writer-director of movies like Dodgeball, um, We're the Millers, Skyscraper. So this is going to be an exciting conversation, I think. I'm hoping the amount of people I get for these series will eventually accumulate in you bringing in someone like Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm in the shrubs outside his house right now. <laughs> so Cam, let's fire up the interview and listeners will see you on the other side. And joining us now is writer, director and actor, Rawson Marshall Thurber. Afternoon, how are you doing? I- I'm, I'm great, Scott. How are you? Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm fine. Thank you. Um, so we're here today to talk about Central Intelligence. This is a movie we covered this week on, on Spy Hards, but also your filmography and just about spy films as well. Um, I have a, a, a litany of questions for you, but okay. I, think, I think Cam will start us off. Well, Great. so I guess with Central Intelligence, I think the core thing people want to talk about is the pairing of the, you know, Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart. Now, you were like a real pioneer here. You figured it out. And since then, I mean, come on, Jumanji films, um, Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah. What was it about those two that you, you know, found in the process of putting this movie together? And then what do you think the spark was? Like, why does it work so well? Uh, gosh, well, I'll take the, the first part first, because the second part is uh, either really hard to answer or too easy to answer. <laughs> Uh, so the first part is, um, well, originally Central Intelligence wasn't, uh, wasn't designed for Dwayne Johnson or, or frankly, Kevin Hart. Uh, the original draft was written by Ike Barinholtz and David Stassen, who are uh, fantastic screenwriters and, and actors in, uh, in their own right. Um, and I think it might have been their first spec screenplay. And I remember I read it before I, I made a movie called Where the Millers. And I read it right, right before I went to go make Where the Millers. And I thought it was great. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is so, this is such a, a great idea. And it's so funny and, and well done. Um, but it was already set up at Universal with, I think at the time, Ed Helms and Will Ferrell. I think that was the pairing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I'll get to how it got, got to where it was. And so went, went made a movie and then uh, New Line asked me what I wanted to do next. And I, and I was hoping to kind of move from sort of straight um, comedy into action comedy and then from action comedy into action and then you know kind of building a bridge right um uh, career-wise and and i just thought i remembered how much i like central intelligence and i thought the premise was so cool and so i said that's the one i'd want to do next and maybe i think it was in turnaround at universal which means universal had elected to not move forward making it and so uh, uh new line went and grabbed it but <clears throat> the original joke in finger quotes the original um kind of comedy element of central intelligence was that the character of, uh, of, of Bob Stone um, uh, was sort of essentially written for Will Ferrell or you know, uh, a Chris Farley type. It, the, the joke was fat Jason Bourne, right? Like this loser from high school uh, that you, you meet uh, back in um, you know, at, at your reunion who doesn't look like he could kick ass at all um, is actually lethal, right? Like that was the joke, mm. just a fine joke. Um, and then 
uh, and then I and then I rewrote, you know, was working on it, rewrote it, and then Dwayne called me. He'd seen uh, with the Millers, and he was wanted to do a, an action comedy, um, and he liked this idea. And he's, you know, and he said, "Well, what do you think?" Um, and he's like the most charming guy in the world, by the way. If you if you ever get a chance, like he could sail, sell sand sand at the beach, uh, as they say. Um, super charming, and and then it like this sort of big cart cartoon light bulb went off over my head, where I was like, "Oh my god, of course! Like this could be. This is so much better, right? That if you were sort of overweight and picked on in high school, right? Of course, you're going to transform yourself into the Rock, right? Into this sort of chiseled super superman as it were um but the but the heart of the movie is that though he looks the way he looks on the outside on the inside he's still the same guy and that's his vulnerability and he still has that same kryptonite as we see in the in the film um and to me that was just uh, like just a better take like i was like oh that's that's great it's it's great for Dwayne. it's great for the heart of the film um and and so i wrote i wrote to that um and and so that's kind of how Dwayne came aboard and then we were talking about you know who would be a great foil uh for um for Dwayne and and there's a couple 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 different names but I'd always been a big Kevin Hart fan uh and and so was Dwayne and and um and so basically like it it, it was almost as simple as Dwayne and I drove to Kevin's office in in the valley and we sat down and we we're like hey we want to do this with you and he and he was all all in and and part of what was fun about it is is and i'll get to the the pairing in a second is that the the part of the elements of, of central intelligence um you know are that we, we take the biggest action star in the world dwayne johnson and make him the funny guy and we take one of the funniest people in the world and make him the straight man um and we thought that was a really interesting kind of way of of um of, of doing it a little bit differently uh, but the last part you ask about, you know, Jumanji having all the success, which, by the way, I take full credit for. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, <clears throat> I'm still waiting for my check. Um, uh, is, is is the fundamental, one of the key tenets of any buddy picture, which is what central intelligence is, right? And you can go back to On the Road with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, right? Like the buddy buddy picture premise, right? Is, um, is basically what is that combustible cast? What is that pairing? right? That you want to see together. What are those two people that is sitting in a car you want to see together? Um, regardless of what necessarily the plot is like, and that is really a function of casting. It's not a function of necessarily writing or, or directing. It's like, what is that pixie dust? What is that, that alchemy? Um, and I, I knew from that, literally that first meeting in, in Kevin's office, I could see it. Right, and they weren't even standing up; they were both sitting down at a table, and they just had this Kevin. I don't even know how to describe it. And then, and then when they got up and they were standing next to each other, I was like, "Oh, well, geez, come on." Um, and uh, and that's that's uh, probably a long-winded answer to, to how we got there. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I, I have half of the Bob Stone story. I haven't still turned into the Rock yet, but I am waiting for that <laughs> to happen. Yeah, you'll get there. You'll get there, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I mean, the question I had at this point is, obviously, you had uh, the idea of central intelligence, then you formed it into the script with The Rock, Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart. How much of a spy story was in what you got in the beginning towards what you then you put into the film yourself? Yeah, well, uh, the 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 premise itself of, uh, you know, the former sort of um, loser from high school 
comes back and is now uh, a trained assassin. That was always there. That was there for uh, uh, the uh, Ike and Dave draft, the original script. And then uh, these very talented writers, um, Anders and Morris, uh, uh, wrote a second pass and still have that same premise. Um, so that part of it never changed. But what the actual brute um, plot was uh, in terms of the Black Badger and, you know, and Bob not being trustworthy and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like that, that was something that I, um, that I added as, as we went, sort of changing that, that plot a little bit. How difficult is it when you're making the movie too to balance between the spy plot and the comedy? Because if it's too much a comedy, people complain, well, the plot didn't matter. Or if it's too much of a spy plot, they go, well, it wasn't funny. So how much of that, how cognizant are you during the process of making it? Oh, that, that's a that's a really great question, and it's um, you know second to casting, right? Second to getting that combustible pairing uh, correct, it's the it's the most important thing, which is which is tone, right? Like, what is the balance between shootout and and hijinks, right? Mm. Uh, and that that part of it is it, when you're talking about an action comedy is is critically uh, important because if you go if if you go too silly, right, then the bullets. Uh, don't matter and, and there's no, no real tension you're never really worried about anybody and if you go too serious um, then people don't laugh um, which is what they want right so you, so it's about striking that that balance and typically what I try to do at least is um, is is make sure that the that the reaction that the heroes are having to you know, to the bad guys is authentic, right? So that now they can have different reactions to the same stimuli, which in central intelligence they do, right? There's like this shootout at the at the office and Kevin is freaking out as any of us would. And and for Bob, it's another day at the office. Ha ha. So so it's it's so so having different reaction to the same stimuli is incredibly important for those sort of buddy pictures, but making sure that that reaction is authentic um, and, and and we don't make our villains um, uh, too broad or too goofy um, is 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 important because if you do that, then the, then you suck the drama out of it. Now, I will say, obviously, Central Intelligence, like nobody's uh, nobody's watching that movie expecting a hard hitting spy picture, um, uh, but you want it to function at least nominally in, in a way that keeps you. I wouldn't quite say worried, but at least engaged, right? And like, okay, how are they going to get out of this? Whether you're genuinely worried for their mortal safety or not. Um, but one example in terms of tone uh, for Central Intelligence specifically is there's a scene later in the film uh, where Amy Ryan, who's uh, a dream uh, to work with, by the way, uh, uh, too classy for that film, uh, she, uh, she tortures Dwayne, um, right? And she like, uh, uh, you know, breaks his, his, his finger. Now, you know, you write that in the script and you're like, she's torturing him and how is she going to do it? And, you know, uh, and, and, and then you're there on the day and you start shooting it. And it can look really gruesome, like more gruesome than you than you think. And then when you're in the edit, you have to sort of mitigate what what that is, right? So so because if you went too gruesome, you know, if you're suddenly in Syriana territory, <laughs> where 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 Clint is getting his fingernails pulled out, which is a great torture scene, right? But that that's not the movie. That doesn't feel good in that in this particular movie, right? Because then, then if you do that, then it takes a while to get your audience to come back and be able to laugh. So in that particular case, you know, though I shot, you see his his finger get cracked. 
we never show it right in the in in that scene you hear it but you don't see it and then you play it as a joke in the next you know i think a scene and a half later where he lifts his hands up and kevin jumps back and then people enjoy that they get they get that laugh but if you were to break his finger on on camera um i think you would get a reaction from the audience but i think it would also have a chilling effect on the enjoyment and the tone so that's you know there's a lot of those pieces throughout that try to keep that balance alive right very nice well, at this stage, you've got a great script in place. You've got Kevin Hart. You've got Dwayne The Rock Johnson. It's all looking great. Now you've got to assemble this cast of other great actors in this film as well. Yeah. Jason Bateman, Kamal Nanjiani, Melissa McCarthy. How, how do they all get involved in the picture? I begged. I begged. Uh, <laughs> well, I know, I know Bateman from, um, uh, from Dodgeball. So he came in and he was uh, Pepper Brooks in, um, in uh, the color commentator in, in, in a, my first movie was called Dodgeball, about adults mm-hmm. hitting big rubber balls. Um, not a spy film. But, um, and he was just amazing and I've known him forever. And uh, he's like, he's super smart and really nice and like really, really funny. And if you know him a little bit, um, he can be like, like deliciously mean funny um, in a way that I personally love. And so, uh, and so when we when we wrote uh, wrote wrote the role of you know essentially he's the grown up bully, um, he was the only person I wanted to play that part. And so I called him up and asked him if he would do it, and he he kindly agreed. So it was mostly a favor. I think he shot for two days or three days, three days I think. Um, and that scene uh, where he <clears throat> you know pretends to apologize and then pulls the mask off. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and then you see that Bob is broken, right? That he's the same kid he always was and um, is my favorite scene in the entire film for a couple of reasons. Um, one is uh, I think just Bateman is so mean and funny in that. And, w- and when, you watch, when you watch it with an audience, um, there's about 8% of the audience that finds it really funny. <laughs> Um, uh, and I'm in that 8%, uh, and, uh, and, and the rest of the people are like, uh, you know, clutch their pearls and are so like, they're so hurt that, that Bob would be treated this way. And you can see it when you, when you, when you watch people watch the movie, which I did as we were making it, um, when you, when Bob sees his reflection, he's broken, like you can hear them go, oh, right. And that's a, a really important moment when you're making the movie, because, because when you have that reaction from the audience, you know, that your characters work, right? You know that, that they care. Um, and, and so to me, that scene is so pivotal because it lets me know uh, who the mean people are in the audience who are laughing with me. And then also, also you know, if, if the movie's working, if we, if we really care. So that's, that's why I love it. Um, it's, the, it's the worst of the worst for our hero. It's the low point. And then very quickly after that, you know, Bob gets arrested, et cetera. Uh, but the other thing I love, which no one will ever see is like, the, it was basically like the first day, uh, Jason, you know, he would always do the script, but then he would just absolutely rip into Dwayne in the, in the meanest, darkest, most personal ways. Um, and most of those takes don't work because Dwayne can't stop laughing because it's so mean. <laughs> um, but also it's like we couldn't go that dark for our film, but it was just delicious. Um, and some of my favorite stuff that, that, I, that I never put in a movie and, and won't. Um, so... So that's Jason. And then, um, 
And then Kumail, uh, you know, was, I didn't know Kumail at the time and, you know, we're friends now. Um, and it was just a, just an ask. It was like, you know, I, I saw him on Silicon Valley and I'd seen some of his stand up, and, you know, I didn't know if he would, if he would do it or not. And he agreed to do it. And then he came in and just, I mean, he just made it better than it had any right to be, you know, I think, uh, it, you know, he, I think there's like a, a snake Hall line and that's, yep. that's all, that's all Kumail, you know? Uh, so he's just basically a genius. So, so that was, you know, whew. Uh, and then the other one that you didn't mention, I'll, t- I'll talk about Melissa in a second, but the other one that you didn't mention was, um, uh, there's Ryan Hansen is in the movie. He plays, um, sort of the office, uh, office jerk next to, um, next to, uh, Kev. And I knew, I knew him from party down and just thought he's just like the funniest guy. And he was so funny in the movie that my producer and partner, uh, Bo Bauman and I were like, we gotta, we gotta do something with Ryan. Like we gotta, like, this guy's so funny. Uh, and then I was like, we got to make something for Ryan. And then I ended up writing and directing two seasons of um, Ryan Hansen solves crimes on television, which is basically stars Ryan Hansen. So, um, which is not spy, but detective anyway. So that, that was, that was that part. And then the last one for Melissa, I've known her for a, a long time. Um, I mean, back when, you know, I was, you know, just starting out and she was just starting out and she's just always the coolest. And, and that idea of Darla McGuckian, we always knew we wanted to find somebody for that, for that role. Um, and Melissa was my first and only choice. And we, it, that was the pickup we shot. We, uh, pickup is a reshoot essentially. Um, we shot a day, a day and a half on central intelligence. It was mostly just like inserts. And then that, that dance scene where, where Darla's there. Um, and she agreed to do it uh, cause she, you know, who doesn't love Dwayne? Um, and, uh, and she, yeah, she came in and just, I mean, I wish I could, I wish you guys had gone through the experience of like screening the movie and it's all working and it, you know, you're, you're doing well, you're scoring well and all that. And then you go do a little bit of a reshoot and then you put, you know, Melissa McCarthy in at the end, the first time we showed it, like three people stood up in their chairs and clapped, you know, like, yep, that's what she's there, <laughs> there for. So that, anyways, that's how, that's how we, we got the sort of uh, murderer's row. I had a, I had a follow up question though, and I think you might've accidentally answered it, but I'll ask anyway. And it's about Jason Bateman. It's yeah. a bit of a nitty gritty question, all right? So in the beginning of the film, you've got the flashback scene where everyone's in high school. But Jason Bateman isn't in the scene, whereas his character is. Uh, wait, how do you mean? Sorry. So um, you've got the school bully. He yeah. throws um, Dwayne out into the middle of the uh, basketball uh, yeah. court. Yeah. Um, and that's Jason Bateman's character. Yes. But Jason Bateman isn't his face isn't imposed on the character oh. like all of our other characters. Yes, yes, uh, great point. Uh, well, I, here's that's uh, a great question. Uh, no one's ever asked me that, but the yes. the, the short answer uh, the short answer Scott is money. Um, okay, you know. Uh, so there was a moment when you're developing the the idea and you're talking with the studio and and there was a moment where. Um, the idea was discussed about just casting a young Dwayne, a young heavyset Dwayne. Um, and, and, and it's something that I really um, uh, fought against. It's like, well, I, it can't, we, we can't do that. Like this, the, the, we need it to be the same eyes that get humiliated at the beginning of the film have to be the same eyes that you that you're with and are redeemed at the end. And we can't just cast somebody else as young rock and, and, and do it like that. I mean, you can, but you're just stealing the heart of the film. And, and so I, I, I dug in and, and, 
and you know argued my artistic point and 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 the studio uh, agreed uh you know but but then so then you do that then you obviously you have to have kevin so you have to dh kevin a little bit to, i mean not much because he's just you know he still looks like he's 18 but uh to dh <laughs> kevin we have to put Dwayne's face on Sione Maraschino's body, who's amazing, by the way. Um, if you ever just YouTube, his, he's like one of the best dancers ever, um, wet on his feet. But then it was just <coughs> strictly, a, excuse me, um, a, a matter of money. You know, you're just like, do we really need to put Jason Baden's face on it? It'll cost, you know, 250 grand. And at that point, you're, you know, you're fighting the battles that you can win. Um, and, and that was it. Uh, so that's, it's, that's, the, that's the inside uh, baseball on it. Um, following kind of up on that, just in terms of, um, some of the casting stuff, I have to admire any filmmaker decides to pit, um, Dwayne Johnson against Aaron Paul in a fist fight and try to make it actually work. And it does work in the movie, (laughs) but, (laughs) um, just in terms of being sort of slowly evolving into an action filmmaker at this point, you said this was kind of a bridge film. You wanted to prove that you could do action. And it's one thing I've noticed in your movies, whether it's dodgeball or, um, uh, we're the Millers is that there's a lot of style to the movies and a lot of time comedy is considered kind of a visually, maybe a little less uh, show-offy than some of the other styles of film. And I was just curious, some of the lessons you learned doing action in this film that you've carried over into Skyscraper and the upcoming Red Notice. Oh, uh, that's, these are great questions. Uh, thank you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're right on that most comedy uh, in terms of like the cinematic aesthetic, right? That, that That's not that's not the most important part, or, or a lot of times that's um, not given the attention that it needs. And I, I don't think there's necessarily any shame in that. I mean, I think part of it is that the, the, the sole function of a comedy should be to make you laugh, right? Job one is like, make sure people are laughing. And a lot of times when you move the camera, right? When you move the camera, uh, the audience's mind is, is subtly recalculating all the time, right? So you're thinking because the parallax is shifting, your brain, you, you know, you're sitting in a chair, but the image is moving. So even subconsciously, your mind is, is, is catching up, right, with what's happening. And part of what's hard to do is to be thinking and laughing, right? A, a laugh is a reaction. You don't see something and, and think to yourself, oh, that's funny. Now I elect to laugh, right? It is, it is a reaction, right? Um, in the same way that, that horror is a reaction. Horror and comedy are you know, a, a micron difference. They're both, uh, they're both reactions to surprise. Um, they're just different reactions, right? So, so in, in a lot of straight comedies, right, that you, you, the more, sometimes the more that you move the camera, the less funny it is. And so you need to be a little careful in that way. Like if you look at Wes Anderson pictures, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's amazing. He shoots everything, I think on a 35 and he center punches everything, right? It's a, it's a funny frame, but it's relatively still. Um, and when he does move the camera, it's more of, um, uh, it's, it's more part of the aesthetic. It's, a, it's usually um, sort of a parallel dolly track moves, right? Which are very storybooky and very sort of, um, I don't wanna say simple, but, but um, very clean movement, uh, I suppose. So, so when, you, when you're dealing with, with, with action and comedy, you, you need to make sure that, um, that one doesn't screw up the other. So, so on, on central, intelligence, I tried to make sure that, um, that the, that the comedy, uh, the comedy had a little bit of, of, 
of zhuzh to it, a little bit of style, so that when we went to the action sequences, it didn't feel like we're watching two different movies sort of checkerboarded. So it's about blending, uh, blending that. And then in terms of lessons that I, that I took with me um, to, to Skyscraper, you know, what's, what was really fascinating to me about, and then to Red Notice, is <clears throat> the amount of support that you get when you're making an action film. Right when they're an action sequence, right? So Miller's and Dodgeball and, and the Mistress of Pittsburgh, I didn't have like a um, you know a, st a stunt coordinator necessarily. I mean, I did, but I didn't have like like action sequences, right? You know, we had storyboards and whatnot. But once you get to Central Intelligence, you get to, to Skyscraper, you have previs. You have you know you have your storyboards, you have previs, you have postvis, you have visual effects people helping you. Um, you've gone over it so many times, like, uh, uh, you know, you've gone over the gag so many times, partly because so many people have to be involved, visual effects, special effects, stunts, um, et cetera, that, uh, the, the, and you also needed to be safe to perform, right? So there's a, so many conversations about it. So in that way, you get, a t as a director, you get a ton more support on the action side than you do on the comedy side. So like a car is either gonna blow up or it's not, right? The gag's either gonna work or it's not. You're never gonna go like, hey, could it blow up funnier? Um, and so, so, so in that way, I felt so supported Whereas like on the comedy side, it's just me. It's me and, and, and me listening and watching and the actors and trying to, you know, there's no stunt coordinator help uh, <laughs> on that stuff. So there are different challenges. And so what I learned, a part of what I learned on central intelligence was that, that you, get, you, you, you get so much support on the, on the action side with people who are wildly talented that all you really need to be able to do is say, this is the feeling I want. I want it to look like this. I want it to feel like this. You watch other scenes, you look at other pictures, you go this, you practice it, you, you test shoot it, don't like it, you keep working. So there's so much support you get there that, um, that, that that's one of the big lessons that I took to Skyscraper and then certainly on, on Red Notice, which is bigger than all the movies put together. Very nice. Uh, I have one last central intelligence question, but Cam, do you have any ones as well? Um, why don't we finish off Central and then move into Red Notice and what's coming up? Okay. Uh, my question is, Central Intelligence 2, when's it happening? And is it about Danielle Nicolette's character becoming a spy as well? Because that's what I want to see. Oh, uh, bless your heart. Um, well, uh, Danielle Nicolette is, I'm, I love her. Uh, she's a, a, a dear friend and like um, super, super awesome. Have you watched Flash? Have you seen her on, on that show? I saw the first season of it. Oh, she's great. Anyhow, um, so we had an idea for Central 2 uh, that I thought was super, super fun. And, um, and we, for, we flirted with it for a second, but then we just couldn't quite get all of the schedules to work together um, at, the, at the time. Um, and, and part of, you know, what's, you know, if you're not going to uh, reboot a, a, a show or a movie 20 years later, there's sort of a shelf life for when you can return to a sequel. Like typically, I think, it, you know, typically you want you want to be there two or three years after the first one so people don't forget what they liked, right? Um, but uh, but in terms of the take, it had uh, it had Danny, it had uh, Kevin, it had Dwayne, and it had uh, Darla McGuckian. So it was going to be Melissa and 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 DJ and Kevin and Danny. Um, and, uh, and it was going to be, a, uh, I don't think I'll, I won't pitch the whole thing, but essentially it was another sort of, it was an international spy, uh, issue. 
um, and Melissa's character uh, proposes to Dwayne's character. Um, and so they're about to get married. And then it turns out Darla's not exactly who she said she was. And Dwayne is, uh, you know, uh, Bob's, Bob's sort of caught up uh, in the whole mess. And he's a bit of a bridezilla as they're planning the wedding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it was a pretty fun uh, spy idea. Um, but I don't think it's ever going to uh, see the light of day. But thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> It's sold. I've got about ten pounds. I can I can lend if you want. To, we can get yeah. it made. Very kind. Very kind. I'll put it. I'll put it in the kitty. I've got ten Canadian, which is worth way less. <laughs> um. So I want to talk about Red Notice, and yeah. I mean, this is your third major collaboration with Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. What keeps bringing you guys back together, and what can we look forward to with Red Notice? Well, I, he keeps calling. That's the problem. Remember <laughs> twice. Yeah, this guy's super thirsty. Um, you know, it's just, I don't know, when you find somebody that you like working with, um, it's, they're just hard, hard to find, you know, and especially someone who's the biggest movie star in the world who happens to like working with you and you like working with him. And it's just sort of, um, it's just luck at, at that, at that point, right? Like I'd never worked with him before. And then central intelligence, we just, you know, we, we both take the work seriously, but not ourselves seriously. And, and I think that we're kind of, um, simpatico in that way. Um, and so when we were making, um, well, for, for Skyscraper, when we were in post on Central, I pitched in Skyscraper. And then we were shooting Skyscraper in Vancouver, uh, Cam, where you are. Uh, uh, we went out to, we went out to, to dinner, we had like a steak dinner in like back room in some steakhouse in, in Vancouver. And I pitched him Red Notice. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, he's got a steak and a big glass of tequila and, and I, you know, order my steak, but I have to pitch this idea. So like, I, I, you know, can't eat anything. I'm like, you know, my stomach's in knots, my, you know, $80 steak is ice cold. Um, you know, and I'm pitch, pitch, pitch my little heart out about this, this new idea. And, uh, and somewhere, you know, around near the end, you know, I get to this one point and he just puts his napkin down, boom, stands up and goes, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. And, and then I got really drunk at that point. Um, so, uh, so the red notices, he liked the pitch. Um, and, and, uh, and, and that's kind of how, how it went. Um, and I don't know, I'm just, I'm super grateful to, to get to work with him. Um, because, you know, for a zillion reasons, for all the reasons that he's the biggest movie star in the world, you know, part of, you know, a big one is that, um, is that all he all he cares about is is the audience that's going to watch this movie like it's never anything that he's coming with in terms of like hey what about this what about that it's not vanity it's it's only about the story um and he doesn't he he can he doesn't care to look foolish he doesn't care to be you know, he can be the hero in the scene he can be the heel in the scene but all he cares about is the movie itself and that's paramount um and they're not all like that uh, uh, and, and so it's nice to, nice to work with somebody who, who has uh, the same priorities that you do. Um, so that's, that's why Dwayne. And it's also exciting just to see, again, an original film at a time where those get fewer and you know, far between. And there are great franchise things out there, so I'm not down on franchises, but it is exciting just to see a filmmaker who's out there making original films and to get basically the biggest movie star in the world signing on to do original films is a really awesome thing to see. Uh, thanks, Kim. Yeah, I appreciate you noticing. Um, uh, yeah, all of all of all of my movies, except for my second one, which was based on a novel, a tiny little novel that I that I loved, uh, are all original. And um, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder if 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 that's the best move for me. <laughs> you know, it's a lot harder to to push that rock up a hill than it is to go like, hey, 
you want to make this thing that already has a built-in fan base around the world, um, which I totally get. I'm not, you know, I, I love those movies. I go see those movies, all that. Um, but it's definitely a bigger risk anytime uh, to make something original. Um, and then, and then for Red Notice, you know, it's it's an original uh, idea that I, you know, thought up in my own brain. Um, and but it's also, you know, it's got three of the biggest movie stars in the world. You know, Dwayne Johnson, Ryan Reynolds, Gal Gadot, and and uh, and it's not cheap. Like it's it's you know those it's it's an expensive ex expensive movie, um, and you know and and those and those are becoming rarer and rarer if it's not already IP. So so I feel um, really really lucky uh, to get to do it, and and I'm going to keep doing it as long as they let me. Well, you know, you work with Dwayne Johnson three times. Um, I look also at Dodgeball. You've got Ben Stiller. You've got Jennifer Aniston and um, We're the Millers. How vital is it to have stars of this caliber just to get original films made? That's uh, a very smart question. It's, uh, I mean, it's everything. Uh, you, you, you know, the, the, especially with original ideas, right? So, so in the crass sort of financing mind, right? they they're betting on ip right whether that intellectual property is star trek marvel you know uh candyland uh board game right they're betting on something um and in the same way they're betting on the intellectual property the brand of a star whether that's dwayne johnson or jeff Aniston or ben stiller right so when you talk about an original movie yes it's an original idea it, you know it's not based on anything but anybody who's going to put their money up, the financiers always want to have something that, that the audience can connect to. We like Jennifer Aniston because she's awesome. So we're going to go see this thing. So, so either which way they're betting on that. Now, of course, they're betting on, on a known, you know, for lack of a better term, term commodity, right? Mm -hmm. Now there are other films that are all unknowns, you know, uh, and based on the story that those are super rare and they're almost always very, very low budget. Um, but that's also great. Like those can be amazing. And you, and that's how, and that's, and you can have breakout stars from, from those tiny uh, little, um, you know, little films like, you know, Tigerland, which is one of my you know, favorite uh, Joel Schumacher films, right? That's a tiny little movie. Uh, Bo, Bo Flynn, who's producing Red Notice and produced Skyscraper. Uh, that was his movie. Um, and, you know, Colin Farrell's in that movie. And, and, and he came out of nowhere and became a big, big star. Um, so those are equally as important, but, it, but yeah, when you talk about original, original films, it's either at a certain budget level, right? Because central was certain and skyscrapers and da, 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 that you need to have something for the financier to, um, to, to feel, um, comforted by, to feel insured by as, as it were. Right. Right. Now, Scott, did you perhaps have some spy questions? I, I did, but before we uh, sign off on that, I, last time I checked, Red Notice is coming out on Netflix. Do we have a date for release yet? Uh, we don't have a date. Uh, it will be this year, uh, 2021. Um, cool. uh, but seeing as how I'm just started my director's cut, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be anytime soon this year. But it will be this year, and uh, very, 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 very excited about it. Cool. Good stuff. Well, a couple of quick fire spy questions, as I know our time is short. Hot seat time. Favorite spy movie of all time? Oh, God. Uh, of all time? Um, this is going to, uh, this is tough because this is like all, all spy nerds. Um, <laughs> uh, I know I'm, I'm going to get judged. Can I, can I say No Way Out? 
Oh, that's a really yeah. interesting choice. The Kevin Costner film. Yes. I just, I mean, I'm a huge Costner fan, always have been. And uh, my dad loved that movie and, I, you know, it's, it's up there, uh, up there for me. Um, you know, I, I don't, if you're talking spy comedies, I, I would go top secret um, if, 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 if you don't mind. Um, you know, I don't know if it counts, but uh, depends on where you draw the line. I don't know where you guys draw the line on spy pictures, but um, but The Incredibles has kind of a spy element to it, mm -hmm. superhero, yeah. and that's essentially a perfect film. Um, you know, gosh, I guess, I guess that's, I mean, that's probably... I mean, there's a great, I don't know if you guys saw it. There was a, a great, um, I think it was German. So the, uh, the lives of others about the Stasi in, uh, in the eighties in Eastern, uh, East Germany. But I thought it was a, a, just a fabulous white knuckle kind of uh, a spy picture. Um, gosh, I, you know, I'm sure there's others. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting, you know, Hitchcock and, <laughs> and, and Wells and all that. But, uh, but those are mine. Okay. Where do you come down on like James Bond, Jason Bourne? Is there oh. any franchises that really jump out to you? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Well, I mean, the Bond franchise, you just have to bow down. Like, I mean, nobody's done it better for that long. Um, you know, I, I cannot wait uh, to see No Time to Die. And I've been just so bummed that they keep pushing it. I get it. But like, I think Kerry Fukunaga is, you know, one of the most talented filmmakers working today. And I can't wait to see what he does with it. Um, and, uh, so I'm super excited about that. Uh, and, and the last two bonds, um, or two or three bonds with, with Sam Mendes, I thought, you know, he's, he's fantastic. And Roger Deakins is maybe the greatest to, to ever do it. Um, I will say that the Bourne franchise, um, he, I, I thought, uh, you know, breathed life into that genre in a way that we hadn't seen in so long, you know, so Doug Lyman's first one just kind of made you sit up straight because we hadn't be like, what is this? And then obviously Paul Greengrass with the, you know, the next one. Um, I don't, I don't know if he outdid him, but he, he continued that sort of freshness. And then for a while you saw everybody ripping that off, right. They mm -hmm. ripped that style off, uh, which is just, you know, this sincerest form of flattery. Um, so, so, but it's also interesting, right? Because you talk about spy franchises, you could put mission impossible in that for sure. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, which I also love. Uh, but, but when you look at like the continuum of like sort of fun popcorn to, to hard hitting, right. You'd put like mission impossible kind of more to the sort of fun popcorny thing, right. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fun. It's a little bit funny, but it's still serious when it needs to be. And, and they strike a great tone with that. And Chris McQuarrie is, you know, basically a, a, a demigod of writing and directing. So, uh, so, you know, I love that uh, genre for its own thing. And then I would put bond, in the middle there, like, cause it's, it's definitely straight, but it has such a, um, um, I, won't, I won't say mausoleum, but a, an oeuvre of, of films that have come before it, that there's always a bit of a wink uh, to it for the, for the diehard fans. There's always a bit of cool to it. I forget which one it was where Bond jumps into the train that's torn off and he just adjusts his cuff link. You know, there's always those little grace notes in it, right? They, they keep you laughing. And then obviously on the far right of the, of the, of the harder core kind of uh, no laughs uh, uh, version, then, then there's the Bourne franchise. And what I think is so cool about it is like, it's essentially broadly speaking one genre, but all three of these massively successful franchises have carved out their own niche, their own footprint, and they're all their own thing. And you wouldn't want any of them to be the other one, right? Cause they all deliver a different taste. Um, so they're, I mean, gosh, they're all great. Um, 
you know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for mission just cause I, I, I typically like a, a little more comedy in my stuff, a little more swashbuckly fun. But if you have to ask also, who is your James Bond? Oh, of, of all, of everybody, you're mm-hmm. not going to like my answer. Uh, I might, I might. <laughs> I grew up when I grew up. And so it's Roger Moore for me. Um, Same as know. me. Is that right? Same That's boat. Okay. Yep. It just depends on when you, when you came of age, right? Yeah. Like I appreciate the Sean Connery stuff. One of my, one of my dearest friends from high school is like a dyed in the wool bond, uh, uh, you know, uh, aficionado. And he's, he's like, you know, it's Connery or, you know, GTFO. Um, and, and that's, and I respect it, but for me, it's, it's, um, you know, uh, yeah, for me, it's, you know, it's, it's Roger Moore. I think we can all agree that it's not Pierce Brosnan. I think we can all agree. <laughs> My what? sister will love you for saying that. <laughs> I love, I love Ronan can steal. He's amazing. But yeah. like, <laughs> but, but it's just like, once you've had Connery, once you've had Roger Moore and I think Daniel Craig's great. Um, and I can't wait to see who's next. I can't like, who, if you guys could, I'm sure you've had this conversation a hundred times. If you could pick the next bond, who would she be? <laughs> mm. um, I don't know. The thing is, if you'd have asked me when, you know, um, Pierce Brosnan's getting ready to leave or getting ready to be cut loose, frankly, at the end of die another day, who I would say, my answer would never have been Daniel Craig. Yeah. I would have been saying uh, whoever, you know, Ray, uh, Ray Fiennes maybe at that point or something yeah. like that. Mm. And so I just kind of count on them to surprise me yeah. because, uh, you know, you look at even when Roger Moore gets hired, you don't look at um, Sean Connery or Lazenby and say, well, he clearly follows in the mold of those guys. So I'm yeah. just kind of hoping whatever it is, it grabs yeah. me in the way that Daniel Craig has. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Scott, what do you think? I, I appreciate that point of view. I, I like the left field choice. I'd like to not know who it is, frankly. Yeah. I would I don't want to have a guess because then I know them too well. Yep. The one I see getting floated around a lot is Richard Madden, who oh, was yeah. in uh, Game of Thrones. I think he's fabulous. He was also in Bodyguard as well, the BBC drama. Yep. Fantastic. Yep. Uh, that, that could be interesting. For sure. Um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. I, I would just be happy to actually get to see No Time to Die, but you know, we can understand what's going on right now. So, yeah. Is, is, is this Daniel Craig's last one? I'm not up, up on it. Is, he, is it a wrap after this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is it. Yeah, nice way to go out. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully he goes out on a high because very few Bonds go out on a high. No, that's, uh, that's interesting. That's a really interesting point. I, well, I don't know. That trailer looked great, and I'm, yeah. you know, I, I cannot wait to see it when it comes out. He would be the one to break the streak, so I'm excited too. But uh, but thanks so much for talking to us. This was a blast. Pleasure. Yeah, great to meet you guys. Thanks for having me. Oh no, it was our pleasure for sure. All right. Thank you, Rosen. Thank Take you. Take boys. See you later. Okay. Take care. Bye. Cheers, mate. Bye bye. So there we have it. That was the second interview as part of our Spy Master Interviews series with Rawson Marshall Thurber. What a fantastic chat that was. Yeah, that was a really interesting chat. Just about, you know, you look at a movie like Central Intelligence that I think a lot of people would just dismiss and be like, oh, that's just a kind of a goofy comedy. But it's really interesting when you actually talk to the creator about the thought processes that went, you know, went on in terms of the development and the creation of it. And just that balancing act between a spy film and a comedy that, again, I don't know if a lot of people think about when they watch a movie like this. No, I remember I was speaking to someone on Twitter this week who who actually assumed this film was just a buddy cop drama. And it partly is a buddy cop drama, but it has this spy uh, story running throughout, um, which we commented on in our original episode covering the film. But I think Rosen had a really tough act to sort of juggle those two things together. 
yeah, I mean, it's very difficult, right? Like, the the um, arena is littered with spy films where they went, you know, far to one to one side or the other, right? And I do think Central Intelligence actually balances its elements really well. It also doesn't prey victim to something that I, tends to annoy me in comedies, um, particularly action comedies, I should say, which is that the action feels kind of, I don't know. It doesn't have a lot of tension or excitement to it because of the fact that the tone of the movie goes a little too goofy where I'm not really buying into the pyrotechnics and the car stunts and all that sort of thing. But I actually think that was a very well-achieved balancing act in Central Intelligence. But, you know, Whoopi Goldberg in a phone booth was absolutely fine. Well, there's one, yeah, that felt a little too goofy where I go, okay, well, the stunt looks like it took some effort, but I'm not really getting a lot out of it. No, apart from a few laughs, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's going to be interesting because obviously there's so many spy comedies and it becomes this question of like, why do they keep making them? Like, obviously there is terrain here that is interesting for filmmakers to continue to mine. And I mean, when I was watching Central Intelligence, I can't say that I was ever like, I've seen this exact same thing done before. You know, the whole high school angle, it was fresh and interesting. Yeah, it gives the the story a sense of tension that there's something bigger going on and it propels the story throughout the film. I think if it was just like a high school reunion story about uh, the rock and Kevin Hart without the spy thing going on, it would have been a lesser film. Yeah, no, I agree. And it was really interesting to hear him talk about his collaborations with um, Dwayne Johnson, because yeah, as we say in the uh, interview, you know, Dwayne Johnson, biggest um, star basically in the world at this point at the box office, um, highest paid movie star, I believe too. Um, and, uh, you know, they've worked on three movies together. And I do wonder if this collaboration is going to continue into the future. And I, I kind of dig the idea of using Johnson's clout to make original films. Yeah, because we, we touched on that in the interview. And it was a really interesting point to sort of delve into that all of his films have been originals. Yeah. That's a, that's a fantastic thing to have on your resume. And all, all credit to him because it would be so easy for him to take a a Marvel film, and he might take a Marvel film down the road, or you know, Star Wars, Disney film, whatever you want to call them. Um, but you know, he's had successful films, and he's got another one coming out on Netflix this year that are all fresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know if Red Notice will apply for Spy Hearts, but I, I'm kind of hoping it does because I think I would just like to have that conversation and talk about it in relation to something like Central Intelligence but I guess the future will reveal whether that's the case. And we of course heard about the original version of the story that featured Ed Helms and Will Ferrell. Yeah I think we theorized in the episode too about because Ed Helms had like a producer credit and we were debating Mm -hmm. which character he would have been playing and I think I said probably the Kevin Hart one um, I don't, I, I think that's accurate, right? It's, it's interesting because the original story as well that we were talking about with Rawson was that the, the CIA agent was overweight, mm-hmm. but then he never, he never lost the weight. It was more just a joke about like a fat Jason Bourne. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because he said it was kind of a Chris Farley type character. Yeah. But neither Ed Helms nor Will Ferrell particularly oversized or known for playing oversized characters. So I'd be interested to know if that was a part of the story that was in between that stage or if one of them was just going to be bigger for the film. But I would have thought with Will Ferrell would have been Dwayne Johnson's character. 
Yeah, I think so. Do you think um, Will Ferrell chose not to do this film because he did the other guys with Mark Wahlberg, which is that cop buddy movie? And maybe it was like, ah, it's a little too similar to that one. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. That's a really good shout. It, it definitely could have been that. Also, there's the whole, um, is anyone buying the fact that Ed Helms and Will Ferrell went to school together? Um, I don't know. They asked me to believe a lot of these people went to school together <laughs> in Central Intelligence, so um it's it's true uh i mean you are right though there is a fairly significant age difference there i think isn't like will ferrell like 10 years older i would have thought it was more not to age up will ferrell i just always assumed he was in his 50s whereas ed helms was like early 40s maybe (laughs) poor will ferrell he's actually in reality like 10 years younger than ed helms (laughs) 10 years younger than you (laughs) will ferrell that fresh-faced young (laughs) go-getter He's really up and coming in Hollywood. That's right. That kid's got moxie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other thing that really jumped out to me on the interview as well, before we got to the other spy stuff, was how he pitched uh, Red Notice to The Rock. Hmm. Yeah. Just the idea of uh, of pitching The Rock over a steak dinner that I imagine you know, The Rock is a, is known for working out and eating, and that's you know just I imagine him just devouring the steak. And drinking this whole like jug of tequila, and there's this mountain of a man in front of you, and you're like, "Hey, would you like to do my film, please?" Uh, and the guy's just like staring at you, just munching his steak down. What an intimidating scene that is! I don't know. Is the Rock intimidating though? I, I mean, you clearly do not smell what the Rock is cooking. That's very true. Very true. I don't know. He seems so like overly joyous all the time that i'm like maybe he's just not intimidating at all he just comes across as just like the happiest most go lucky you know guy in the room i could see him doing like the intense stare down until he decides to give you the yes and he's like yeah and then like hugs you and you know picks you up and you know throws you around like a rag doll one thing i was very curious about too just when um, listening to him talk about working with uh, Dwayne Johnson was he saying you know how much he's focused on the audience when they're making a movie and how intensity is it trying to achieve in, in many ways perfection for an audience experience and I began to wonder to myself and it wasn't a question I could ask really um, I'm wondering how much Dwayne Johnson is similar to someone like Tom Cruise where they give so much of themselves to the process of these films that it's almost like we can't even really comprehend it because when you see their public persona, it seems so larger than life and kind of, they don't quite seem to be operating on our normal mortal level, but I can completely buy that they're very intense on the set and focused at delivering, I mean, spectacle that will wow an audience. I mean, they've both got a proven track record of knowing what works for them and having good films and good successes with it. And they've had a few duds each. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean they weren't driven to make it work. It just didn't work that time. Yeah, well, that's the thing, and they keep swinging. And I can believe, you know, that I don't know when Tom Cruise is making like Far and Away, which was kind of a uh, you know critical bomb back in the day, that he was putting all of his effort into making that a great movie. It just didn't work out for him. And I I would suspect the same with Dwayne Johnson. You know, on some of the movies he's had that maybe didn't pan out great. Hmm. And you, you, you know, again, you got to tip your hat to to Rawson. Uh, the sheer fact that the highest paid actor in the world wants to work with you three times, mm-hmm. or, and more potentially. That's that's a tip of the hat that anyone yeah. should be proud of. 
Oh, totally, totally. And, uh, you know, a lot of directors have their go-to, um, you know, leading men or women. You know, you think of the great collaborators over the last handful of years. You know, you have like the um, Scorsese and DiCaprio or Scorsese and De Niro back in the day. Um, I think it's really awesome when you get these director um, actor pairings and just to see how their projects evolve and how they don't replicate themselves. Like I've seen skyscraper. I've seen central intelligence. Those two movies are not the same thing. Mm. Uh, wasn't the other one that springs to mind, uh, Robert Redford and Sidney Pollock. Yeah. That's another one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh did Sidney do three days of the condor? Am I forgetting that? He did. Yeah. yeah okay. That's a connection there. Um, and of course, we also spoke about spy movies. How could we not? It's what we do. Um, and usually when we have guests on or we interview, we interview Nicholas Meyer in the first part of the series, um, we like to ask them what their favorite spy movies are. And I'm often surprised by choices because usually you think people will go for, you know, Casino Royale, great film. Um, but, you know, Rawson came out with his, his favorite spy film is No Way Out. Yeah, which was an exciting um, thing for me to hear. I haven't seen No Way Out. I do have a copy on my shelf for when we cover it in the future, but it's one I've heard name-checked a lot over the last handful of years, um, and uh, I'm very excited to dig into it. I love hearing titles like this thrown out. Even when Nicholas Meyer was throwing out Little Drummer Girl, the book, it made me more interested in watching the Little Drummer Girl, the movie, because that's one when I added it to the list initially, because we do have a master list of spy movies to cover in the future. When I added that one, it meant nothing to me. I'm like, I haven't heard of this movie. It's a Diane Keaton film. Okay, sounds cool. We'll cover that at some point. And then to hear Nicholas Meyer throw that one out made me that much more jazzed. And that was the same. It had the same effect here hearing No Way Out thrown out. Well, Cam, you can put the DVD of No Way Out under your pillow along with the book of Little Drama Girl. <laughs> I swear I own that book. <laughs> we want pictures to prove it thank you yeah, yeah no kidding and <laughs> yeah. of course his favorite uh james bond is of course your favorite too i kind of expected this because i believe he's about he's a few, you know just a few years older than me and i fall on the tail end of roger moore right like i'm seeing view to a kill when i'm younger but I, like the last roger moore's in 85 so he would have been watching them probably around that sort of octopusy, free your eyes only, um, view to a kill kind of period. So it makes a lot of sense. He was born in 1975. Yeah, yeah. So it does line up um, that, you know, the whole video store era, those are the ones he probably would have been seeing when he was quite young. And he, of course, trashed Pierce Brosnan, which hurt me to my core. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I feel like we may hear more of that in the future. Poor Pierce. I, I will keep fighting uh, Pierce's corner. I, I have Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia 2 on Blu-ray. Oh, wow. I wish I was kidding. <laughs> what about Detonator? Uh, that one hasn't exploded onto my screens just yet. <laughs> I appreciate the pun. Yeah, you're welcome. Dante's Peak was quite good, though. Yep, yep. Um I have nothing but love for Pierce Brosnan. So that's why I'm in the shrubs outside his house right now. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to cover more Pierce Brosnan. But, yeah, I think this may be a common opinion we hear. And to be fair, there's nothing wrong with it. And, and the only other major scoop we got out of it was the, the little tidbit of what Central Intelligence 2 could have been. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I w- I'm always curious to see how they would build upon that because I'm someone who generally doesn't love... I mean, it's very hard for me to find comedy sequels that I like because a lot of comedy sequels are just trying to repeat the dynamics or the jokes of the original. Um, if you really go down the list, historically, there's very few comedy sequels that anyone thinks are particularly great. But I did appreciate that where he was thinking of taking it felt like a story... Um, evolution as opposed to what happens if they were in another type of job or another type of mission like it, it felt different i i did actually have a a somewhat of a an idea written down if we did go that way in the conversation would you like to hear it yeah sure okay so my pitch was and i i sort of hinted to it when we were speaking to rawson was that uh we didn't really hear much about uh danielle nicolette's job yeah. in the first film so we could maybe make it that her job is bought out by some company and this company turns out to be owned by some you know mustache twirling blowfeld type if you will hmm. and they need daniel nicolette to go undercover to the headquarters to you know expose everything but you can't send kevin hart as her husband you have to send the rock mm, yeah that's a good call yeah and then you stick kevin hart in the van he's your man in the van it's, it's it writes itself yeah i guess so yeah probably not as funny as uh, as rawson's pitch but hey i'm not a screenwriter <laughs> yeah his pitch with melissa mccarthy in a larger role i think that might have done really well <laughs> yeah um but i mean overall we were so thrilled to have rawson join us uh for uh, yeah a good 40 minutes talking about a film that he clearly loved doing and we love talking about yeah any chance we can get to bring a filmmaker or actor for that matter, we'll see what the future holds, who helped bring a spy movie to life, I think is really great for all of you because I know there's a lot of spy fans out there who want context and information regarding what went on behind the scenes. We can only, you know, we give our you know own research on the podcast or, you know, theorize what may have happened in certain uh, situations, but it's great when we can have the filmmakers come on and really lay it out and kind of let us into their heads and let us know where they were when they were putting these projects together. So I do look forward to doing more of that in the future. Yeah, we, we have our eyes set on a few people. Dabney Coleman, we're looking at you. Um, and we would love to to speak to them. But again, we were so thankful that Rawson could join us. Thank you, Rawson. And I think that wraps us up, Cam. I think it does. So there we are. That was part two of our Spymaster interview series. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more from us, you can find us at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, you can join us on Tuesday for From Russia with Love, the Sean Connery film from 1963. But until then, listeners, don't get caught dancing in the showers.